0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 6, Genesis chapter 6, and the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those so you can follow along as we look at the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6. Two years ago, a high school football coach in Utah dismissed his entire football team due to discipline problems, both in school and home off the field. An article in a local Utah paper said a high school football coach fed up with his players off the field behavior suspended all 80 members of the team and made them help out in the community instead of practice. Matt Labram, football coach at Union High School in Roosevelt said problems ranging from cutting class to cyberbullying prompted his extreme response. We felt like everything was going in a direction that we didn't want our young men going, the coach said. He was prompted to act after guidance counselors told him about a student who had been bullied on a website and suspected football players were behind it. Although coaches could not tell who was behind the bullying, Labrum told his team, we don't want that represented in our program. He was also concerned about players failing and skipping classes and showing disrespect to teachers. At the team meeting a day after the mass suspensions, the coach passed out a letter titled Union Football Character, telling the boys what they had to do to get back on the field, which included acts of community service. A mother of one of the players said, I objected at first, but now I support it. These boys are not going to be hurt by this. It's a good life lesson. It's not punishment. I see it as an opportunity to do some good in the community. The responses of most people to that coach's action were like that of that mother. It's a good lesson, and many of them added words to the effect, it's about time someone started instilling some discipline in our kids. There were some who disagreed, saying we're punishing all 80 players for the offenses of only a portion of the team. But whatever you think of the coach's actions, you have to say it was quite drastic and bold. And probably most of us would agree that there are times when drastic, bold action is called for. In today's passage in Genesis chapter 6, we read of just that kind of action. But it's much, much, much more drastic. Take a look at verse 1 of Genesis 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, two weeks ago, the message was a review of chapters 3 and 4 of Genesis and what we had learned in those chapters about sin. Last Sunday, we saw that chapter 5 is all about the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. And now this week, the pronouncement of God's worldwide judgment. In all of this, there have been, if you've been with us for these last few weeks, there have been glimpses of God's grace that we've mentioned, but it would be easy to get mired in all the talk of sin and death and judgment and to forget that it all points to good news, ultimately the good news of the gospel. So to ensure that we don't miss that important theme, I'm going to do something that I do every few years, and that is take a few weeks to go over the gospel. So after today... And after we have our guest speaker, Les Olala, that we mentioned in the program and in the announcements, after he is here next week, then two weeks from today, I'm going to start a mini-series on the gospel, and then we'll come back to uh, Genesis chapter 6 in the book of Genesis. For now, let me ask you to answer this question to yourself. What do you think of God's judgment as warned in this passage? Is God justified in taking such drastic action against everybody? What do you think about that? Let's pray and ask God to help us as we hopefully come up with an answer that aligns with his. And then we will look at the outline that we have inserted in your program. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come before you humbled by the teaching of your word which teaches us how very deep our sin is and precisely what it deserves. And yet, Lord, as those who have sinful minds and sinful hearts, it's hard for us to see the brightness of your holiness, your glory. And so, Lord, we don't align our thoughts with yours. And What we read in your word sometimes troubles us. We help you, Lord. To, we ask you, Lord, to help us to have clarity about who you are and what you have done and what you are doing in your world. And as a result of that, may we go forward with confidence that we are serving the good creator God who has placed us here and designed us here for his good purposes. That is our good and his glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I mentioned that outline that's inserted in your program. We have that there every week. If you don't have that out already, please take a look at that. And from this passage, we've got two major points that I want you to see. The first one is this, that humanity's sin is extensive. Humanity's sin is extensive. Humanity's sin is extensive. The first two verses again say, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Now, all things being equal, verse 1, if taken by itself, would be a very positive thing. Because it tells us humanity is populating the earth, and that's something that God had commanded the first man and the first woman to do. Back in chapter 1, you'll recall, in verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And so here we read in chapter 6 that that very thing is happening. So if left to itself, that's a very positive thing. But while the human family was following God's directive to multiply and fill the earth, this verse tells us that evil also was expanding. And that is because each one of those children carried with them the nature of their parents, which goes back to the original pair, Adam and Eve. That extent of the spread of sin then, going through the progeny, the descendants of our first parents, Adam and Eve, had now spread to a point that God was going to take this drastic action. And the extent of the spread of that sin includes, as I say in your outline, every person. It extends to every person. It extends to every person. Multiplying people, according to verse 1, has multiplied problems. It's multiplied evil in God's world. And one of the major sources of the spread of sin is that a a group that verse 2 calls the sons of God have married and had children with, according to the end of verse 2, any of them they chose. That is, these sons of God are indiscriminately and foolishly marrying women that they should not have. So who are these guys? Who are the sons of God? If you're familiar with this passage or any commentaries on this passage, you know that there have been many, many attempts to identify them. And some of you may be familiar with some of those varying opinions. But I hold, and I will tell you why in a moment, I hold that these are the descendants of Adam's son, Seth. The so-called godly line of Seth, as opposed to the ungodly line of his brother, Cain. Now, I say that in part because chapter 4 highlighted the difference in character between Cain and Abel. You know that, and we saw several weeks ago, that Cain murdered his brother Abel. And then in chapter 4, in verse 25, it says this. Eve gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And then the end of verse 26 in chapter 4 says, At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So in contrast to Cain, you have, in effect, a new Abel. He murdered Abel, now you have a new Abel, Seth. In chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, trace the evil line of Cain. In the evil line of Cain, it said some things about a man named Lamech, for example who bragged of the fact that he had murdered and bragged of the fact that he was a polygamist. And so it traced the evil line of Cain and then all of chapter 5, the godly line of Seth. And then chapter 6, where we are now, begins with those called the sons of God. But they're sinning. They're sinning in their marriages. They're producing offspring who have apparently not been taught the ways of God, and they show it in their behavior. Now, this should not surprise us. That those who have been given the things of God and entrusted with the things of God find those things to be of little value as time goes by. This is the pattern that we see in Scripture over and over. This was the pattern by the time you get to Abraham, as we will at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. It's nearly a thousand years later. And by the time of Abraham, after the flood and after God has repopulated the earth, people had thrown off almost all knowledge of the true God. And then by the time of, of Christ, 2,000 years after Abraham, the religious leaders had so turned from God that a minority of the people accepted Jesus as the predicted Messiah when he came to earth. And we're told in Scripture that this will be the pattern, that people will go from bad to worse. In fact, Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, said that very thing. Evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse. And Jesus, when he walked the earth, as he looked at and as the Son of God knew the sinfulness of man and saw observed it firsthand as a human himself, he asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This passage shows that sin extends to every person, even those who are spiritually privileged with the things of God. Seth's line was privileged and chosen by God, and yet even so, over time, they succumbed to the allure of the world. They followed their own desires. They disobeyed God, and the result was ultimately that generations later, their children forgot all piety toward God and lived for themselves. Verse 2 says they intermarried because the women were beautiful in their eyes. And the word that's translated beautiful in verse 2 is the very same word that we find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, where it says that Eve saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that God had forbidden for them. And chapter 3 and verse 6 says she saw that it was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye. It was beautiful to, to Eve, but God had forbidden it. It was beautiful to these women were beautiful to these men, but God had forbidden it. And so both Eve and now her descendants saw and they liked. And the Bible says in chapter 3 that she took and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And likewise now in chapter 6, these sons of God, these descendants of Seth, they saw, they looked, they liked it, and they took. Same word for take in both accounts, chapter 3 and chapter 6. And there is what we see in this story, what we see in our own desires. And what God sees as best for us. You see, friends, there's what we see and how we see it. And what we desire out of what we see. And then there's what God has seen and said is best for us. And when we follow our desires rather than God's directives, we always pay the price. Eve saw that it was good to her. These men saw that they; these women were good, beautiful to them. But God had said, I see, and this is what I see, much more than you do. And I'm telling you the road that you should travel on. I'm giving you the directives that will keep you in safe harbor. And so the woman took the fruit from the forbidden tree. And apparently now those privileged by God have taken women from the forbidden line. Now, did you know in your Bible over and over again, God's people are told that there is not to be intermingling and especially intermarriage between believers and unbelievers. We're told that in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and we're told that very explicitly in your New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6 says this, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And specifically referring to marriage in First Corinthians chapter 7, here's what the Bible says. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. You all see that? If you've been spiritually privileged and appropriated that privilege, in salvation you belong to God. This line of Seth, now these many generations later, apparently no longer belong to God. They had rejected and forgotten about that, but they were still the privileged line. But if you're part of that privilege, you're part of a privilege right now, sitting here, hearing the word of God. And if you've appropriated that in faith, God says, you are part of a people who are different than the other people. Those who don't know me. And what do believer and unbeliever have in common, such that they would have this most sacred union of marriage together? And so you are called and told directly, 1 Corinthians 7, you marry only one who belongs to the Lord. Friends, God has no grandchildren. And so each generation must diligently be taught the things of the Lord in both word and deed. And then they must declare for themselves that they will follow him. Parents, church, that's our responsibility here now, to diligently teach our children. The things that God has entrusted to us, and by word, by the, uh, our, of our mouth, and by the modeling of our lives, show them what a follower of Christ looks like. Those in the community of faith, those to whom the truth has been committed and the privileges of truth have been passed on, are not immune to the enticements of the world. That's why the Bible's replete with warnings. You see, we're the privileged line. If we've been given the things of God, and therefore we can think ourselves immune to the pollution of the world. Well, if that were the case, then why would God warn over and over again about it? If we were immune to it. And yet he does, doesn't he? Remember Romans chapter 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. And you remember the night before Jesus died. He prayed to the Father in John chapter 17. And he prayed to the Father there about himself. But then after praying about himself, he focused his intercessory prayer to those of his very first followers, the apostles. And then after that, looking into the future, those who would become his followers in the future, you and me. The night before Jesus dies, he prays for us, if you can believe that. And as he's praying for those first followers and by extension praying for us, in that prayer, one of the things Jesus says to the Father is this. My followers are not of this world any more than I am of this world. And so, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them, that is, set them apart. Set them apart from the world. Why? Because they are not of the world. And regularly and gradually, progressively... Set them apart from the world in their values and in their affections and in their desires. And through what instrumentality does that come? Your word is truth. So as we read the word and we see there the character of God and we see there what the people of God are to be like and how we are to emulate the character of God then God's desire is and design is for us to move in that direction, progressively removed from the world and separated unto God. The Bible warns further. In James chapter one, religion that God our father accepts as pure and faultless is this to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And then again, in James chapter four, friendship with the world means enmity, war against God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, I ask you, dear friends, why then would those who have been privileged as we have been, why would we dance with the world? Why would we dabble in the things of the world, the values of the world, the sensuality of the world, the pride of life? The lust of the eyes. The lust of the sinful nature. Why would we engage in that? And yet you find, we find, do we not? The temptation to be allured and drawn away. And God warns. Sin extends to the spiritually privileged. And that's what these guys were. And that's what you are. And that's what your children are. They are spiritually privileged. But it extends not only to the sin to the spiritually privileged, but also to the physically privileged. Verse 4 says this. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Well, who's that? So this was just a fun passage to work through. Okay, you got the sons of God. Who are those guys? You got the Nephilim. Who are those guys? Right. Right. The Nephilim is actually just a transliteration of the the Hebrew word. And it's actually only used one other time in the Old Testament. Now, one one other time, though, I think is instructive. Because it's found, and we'll have it on the screen in a moment, in the book of Numbers. And the context is that the children of God, the Israelites, are wandering in the wilderness. They've left Egypt. God has told them to take the promised land that he has committed to them they send some spies into the land to check out whether or not the will of God can actually be done <laughs> and the spies come back and you remember they're scared to death at what they at what they see and here's what they part of what they report back we saw the Nephilim there we seemed like grasshoppers to them So these are people, this is the reason I say, of physical privilege. These are people of physical stature, intimidating physical stature apparently. So now in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 6, this is simply a parenthetical note to those to whom this was first written in the time of Moses. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis. And what we're reading about in these opening chapters of the book of Genesis all happened before Moses' time. So Moses is writing to us things that happened millennia before his his time. But he's writing in the time of Numbers chapter 13. And he's writing to people who were afraid because of apparently these giants in the land. These people that they were intimidated by. And so there's this parenthetical note way back now in Genesis. Saying that, you know, the Nephilim, those of physical stature. They were around when all of this evil was happening. And in fact, there's a note in verse 4 that says, and they were around afterward. They were there before and they were there after. And guess what? They got killed too. God judged them and God destroyed them just like he did everybody else. So why were we afraid to go into the promised land? The same God who destroyed them in the days of Noah can destroy anyone at his will. So the extent of sin and the power and authority of God to judge sin extends to all people, the spiritually privileged, the physically privileged. And then there's a third category in verse 4. I call it the socially privileged because the end of verse 4 says this. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. So these children... Some of these children that came from the alliance between these sons of God and the daughters that they married and had children with, these were the heroes of old, men of renown. The heroes of old are the mighty ones. In fact, some translations say that. The mighty ones. They're the warrior class. They're fighting people. But they were revered because they were feared. And verse 11 probably alludes to their work. Chapter 6 and verse 11, where it says the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So as a result now of this ability in this of the warrior class to strike fear in the hearts of others, by their violence, they had made a name for themselves. Men of renown. And that word renown means people of a name. And what's interesting about that, to me at least, is that as the story goes on in the chapters that follow, you're going to find the sons of Noah who are spared from the destruction. One of those sons is Shem and Shem's name means name. And God says, in effect, these are people making a name for themselves, but I'm still making a name for myself through the line that I have chosen. Humanity's sin is extensive. It extends to the spiritually privileged and the physically privileged and the socially well-known, the socially privileged. Humanity's sin is extensive. It extends to every person, and I say in your outline, it extends through every personality. To every person and through every personality. Verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. (laughs) So when it says every inclination, that means every purpose of the the heart, every design of the heart. And it's the exact same word that's used in chapter 2 and verse 7. In chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, when the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. And that word formed is the same as the word here as inclination. The idea is design. When the Lord God designed man out of the dust of the ground and here in chapter six and verse five, we have people that have designs, but evil designs coming out of their hearts. So now human beings made by God's design have taken their God given capacities and they're devising evil continually. And when it says every inclination of the human heart, understand that heart in Scripture is not just the emotions the way we use it. But heart is actually the control center of the person that is the mind, the will and the emotion. So every every thought, every design, every purpose is all inclined toward evil. And so that's why I say in your outline that sin extends throughout the personality. It's for this reason. We are persons because we have God-given the faculties of personhood, mind and will and emotion. And in that, we reflect God. It's part of the image of God that we have a personal resemblance to God. God both both thinks and acts and feels. God has thought and volition and emotion. And he has given that to us, made in his image as well. But sin has tainted every piece of that. That's what chapter 6 and verse 5 is telling us. That the thoughts and the inclinations of the heart so that they were only devising and doing, as we saw in verses 1 and 2, evil continually. So this is what we mean when we say total depravity. That human beings are by nature totally sinful, totally depraved. It does not mean that each person does as much evil as they possibly could, thankfully. But it does mean that every part of the person, the totality of their personality, mind, will, and emotion has been tainted, has been affected by sin. So human sin is extensive. But thankfully, there's a second point in this passage, and that's in your outline. God's character is inclusive. God's character is inclusive. When I say inclusive... I mean comprehensive, it comprehends, it includes a number of things. We're going to see a couple of those. God's character is inclusive. Now, what does it include? It includes, I say in your outline, his judgment. God's character includes his judgment. Verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. So you see God's judgment mentioned there in verse 3. And then verses 6 and 7. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them the animals, birds, and creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I've made them. Here's what God is saying. I'm going to kill them. And I'm going to kill all of them. That's what he's saying in verse 3. That's what he's saying in verses 6 and 7. I'm going to kill them, and I'm going to kill, wipe all of them out. Now, why? It tells us in verse 6, because I'm deeply troubled. That's sometimes translated that God was grieved. And it raises the question, then, is God moved emotionally so that his actions are shaped by what happens with people? Does God suffer? And you have lots of people who say that. And I, I read authors, and they're very entertaining, and they have lots of insights. And you go, wow, I never thought of that. And a lot of times, friends, there's a reason you've never thought of that, because <laughs> that guy's making it up. But, and they say things like, you know, that God suffers more than we do, and, and God is the suffering God. And I don't think that's, I'm convinced, absolutely convinced, that that's not the right way to think of God. Hear this. God had to become human in order to suffer. Did you know that? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Hebrews 2 and verse 10 says he became like one of us so that he could taste death and suffer. You see, without taking humanity, God doesn't suffer. But he took humanity and in his humanity, to be sure, he suffered in what we call his passion. He suffered. He had to become man, though, to do that. He suffered in his humanity, but as God, God does not suffer. Rather, it's this. His character is such that sin in his presence always gets the same response. Unlike our emotions, now hear this, that might be moved by something one day, but not be moved by it the next, God is moved always the same way. Now here's why. Because God's character does not change. That's called God's immutability. Stay with me. God is immutable. That is, he doesn't mutate. He doesn't change. His character does not change. And because his character does not change, therefore his emotions are not volatile. He indeed has emotions, but they're controlled by his unchanging character. And that's why old theologians used to speak of the impassibility of God. Not only is he immutable in his character, he does not change, but his emotions are always the same. He has not moved externally in a different way in one circumstance than in another. So 1 Samuel chapter 15 says this, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. That is, is, God is indeed moved, but God is moved consistently because his character is consistent to changes that humans make not changes in God. And so one author says this, one way to think of God's immutability, the fact that he doesn't change, and his emotional life is to think of a white light refracted through a prism. The light is unchanging. Its nature is consistent. But as it passes through the prism, we see the white light in all the colors of the rainbow. In the same way, God is immutable, that is unchanging, and impassable, that is, there's nothing external that causes his emotions to uh, vacillate. But when his nature and character refracted through the prism of constant change happens, we see differentiation. We see colors that are not an illusion. We really see them. They're really there. Just like God's emotions are not an illusion. The different colors are an expression of the same white light, just as God's emotional interaction with the world is an expression of his immutable, impassable character. So a holy God who must judge sin, when he sees sin, he reacts the same way every time. And he is moved and he is, he is grieved and he is deeply troubled. Now, why should God judge so harshly? As I said, God must judge sin. This is not something that he voluntarily does. God must, because of the constitution of his holy character, must judge sin. And his dealing with the effects of sin, harsh though it is, is a good thing. Just as, and consider this illustration, dealing with weeds in a garden is a good thing, lest those weeds take over. In fact, one commentator says this, God will not allow the weeds to take over his garden, and so he cuts it back. That's a good definition of judgment in this world. It's God cutting sin back. And it's a good, marvelous thing because if God did not cut sin back, it would destroy everything good that God has made. You see this throughout the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, so God slowed the progress of their sin by excluding them from the garden. Cain became the first murderer, so God separated him from the family. In the time of Noah, evil multiplied, so God cut it back through the flood. But sin keeps growing. And it was not long before a community of people at Babel that we will see in chapter 11 found a new way to express their defiance toward God, and God intervened there as well. Now, I asked you, friends, at the beginning of this to consider. To consider the question of whether or not God was just in his all-encompassing judgment. Destroying all people. What do you think about that? Many would have a real problem. And I think the reason we would have, many of us, a real problem with that is because we tend to prioritize the horizontal effects of sin over the vertical. You know what I mean by that? The horizontal. We prioritize the effects that sin has on us and other people over the effect that it has on God and our relationship with Him. And I'm going to give you an illustration of that, but I want to warn you as I read this illustration that involves a jarring and unpleasant portion to it. But consider this description of a guy. We'll call him Guy. Guy G. Guy. And Guy's a really good person. He's as honest as the day is long. He's hardworking. He's a straight shooter. He gives to charity and not just to formal charities. I've never seen Guy turn down a panhandler on the street. He's devoted to his wife and children. He's a regular church attender. He drives within the speed limit. He always seems neatly dressed and clean. I hardly ever see him sitting around. He's often out working in his yard or even helping elderly neighbors work on theirs. He's a good guy, right? Oh, wait, I left out just one thing. Guy does have this one pastime. When the mood strikes him, Guy molests small children. But otherwise, he's a good guy, right? Well, no, I'm pretty sure I lost you with that last stomach-jolting little attribute. That's what we would call a deal-breaker. However the other, however nice the other descriptives are, that last one counterbalances and stains all of them. That's a vice that's so repellent, so intuitively appalling, that extended argumentation isn't necessary. Our image of this imaginary fellow does an abrupt about-face with one simple, specific bit of information about him. Now, that's a horizontal sin and a heinous one at that. But what if you replace Guy's one problem so that instead of it being molesting children, his problem is that for all of these good things, Guy fails to love the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul. How serious is that? And which is more serious to us? Do you see how we tend to prioritize the horizontal? And God says, I made you. And I made you for my purposes. And when you sin against me, you have committed the highest form of treason. You have committed a capital offense. Hear this. Every sin is a capital offense. Every sin could damn us forever because we have sinned against the infinite holiness of God. And so God says, I'm going to cut it back. I'm going to destroy all. And God is absolutely justified in doing so. God's character, I say, is inclusive. It includes his righteous judgment. And then lastly, in your outline, God's character includes, thanks be to God, his grace. His grace. The end of verse 3 says this, that their days will be 120 years. Now, it's not that mankind is now, after this, going to live 120 years. In fact, after the flood, when you get to Genesis chapter 11, you find people not living as long as they used to, as some of the ages we saw in chapter 5, but living longer than 120. It's not that they're now going to live 120 years. God is saying that I will not wipe them out for 120 years. This is an act of God's grace. God is grieved at what he sees. God is going to punish, but God gives time. And God gives 120 years in his grace. And then verse 8 says this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was in a state of grace, grace that God had given him before this point. And this explains what we're going to read now in several weeks after we take this mini series that I mentioned, where Noah engages in this righteous behavior. The only reason Noah engages in righteous behavior is because Noah found grace from God. Hear this. God's grace comes before our work, but God's grace always leads to that work. And that's exactly what happened in the life of Noah. And that is why Paul said of himself in the New Testament, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked hard. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Humanity's sin is extensive. Every person, throughout every personality. But thanks be to God, his character is inclusive, not only of his judgment, but of his grace. And God has given his grace to us most profoundly in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace is such that your take-home truth is true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. God's grace is such that it overcomes our sin, the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin as well. Now in just a moment we're going to pray. But I want you to think about the fact that you and I sin. And I want you, all of you, to think about whether or not that sin has been covered by the only payment that can be made and is sufficient for your sin. And that is the payment that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, made on the cross for you. Those of us that have come to the foot of the cross and had the blood of Jesus applied to us so that we stand before God through the life, righteous life of Jesus, even though we still sin, we should be grieved as God is grieved over sin. So we're going to bow in just a bit and ask the Lord, O oh, Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, empower us to live for you and live consistent with your holy character. But those of you who came into this room and you've never come to God through Jesus Christ, he offers himself to you in his grace. This is your opportunity to find grace. And God offers that grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who did for you what you could not do for yourself. He died the death That you should have had. But he lived the perfect life that we were called to live when we were made by God in the garden. And so what do you do? You realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ died for your sin. Repent. Repent means, Lord, I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way, no longer my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. And you do that when we bow and pray. The Bible says he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from your heart to God. In your own words, you say to him, Lord, I'm a sinner. And you rightly could condemn me. But I thank you that you condemned my sin in Jesus instead in your grace. And I ask you to apply to me what you did through him. Forgive me and I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you. That though your word tells us difficult things, difficult things for us to process very often. Difficult things for us to put our limited minds around, let alone our sinful minds around. And yet, Lord, your word is true. Your word is clearly teaches who you are and who we are. And the one storyline of your word moves relentlessly from our problems to your solution in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, I thank you that at a point in time, so many of us that are in this room were drawn out of the world into yourself by the grace that you extended to Noah. Thank you that that grace still calls out men and women and boys and girls. And I pray, Lord, that we would live then in gratitude for the grace that we have been given. Help us to be people who give ourselves as living sacrifices to the one who gave himself for us. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit is moving in this sacred moment on the hearts of some who have never come to you. And in your grace, you're reaching down and drawing them to yourself, moving their hearts to be moved toward you and away from the world. Lord, as a result, we will give you the glory for what you're doing in them and what you have done and are doing in us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.